Hello and welcome. This is a podcast explaining Ukraine by ukraineworld.org. We continue our podcast about the war which Russia started against Ukraine. This series is brought to you by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center to Ukrainian media NGOs. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org and I'm joined by Tetyana Harkova, who is in charge of international outreach at Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Hello, Tanya. Hello. So, uh, before we start, let me remind you that you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. And today we decided to talk uh, with you about uh, more background. We, we, tried, we will try to talk about Ukraine, Ukraine uh, Ukrainian identity, uh, try to analyze what, who are Ukrainians, who they are, what do they want, so that you have the idea, if you are new to the Ukrainian topic, if you are new to this Eastern European topic, so that you have the idea, what are the roots of what's going now, and uh, why Ukrainians, for example, are making such a huge resistance against Russian invasion. Yeah, so, this is an extremely interesting and fundamental question, because we are uh, always asked about who you are and what do you want. Because what we see now, that a lot of uh, international communities, they do understand that what ex-president of Ukraine wrote many years ago, he said that Ukraine is not Russia. So this is a common statement, this is a common thesis, which is quite, quite clear. And this is one of the reasons why, for example, this war started, this large-scale war started, because Putin is uh, fighting here against, as he said in the beginning, against uh, Nazification and militarization of Ukraine, which is anti-Russian. So which, he's fighting against Ukraine, which is not Russia. And yesterday he repeated that, he enlarged his statement saying that, well, we are also fighting for Russia and for its place, for its place on planet, something like that. So it is quite clear for, for maybe for international communities that Ukraine is kind of alternative to Russia. It is not Russia, it is an, on the opposite Russia. But, but still a lot of questions, what exactly, what does it exactly mean to be anti-Russia, what kind of opposition, what kind of positive statement are we able to do today about our identity, about our history, about our future? I think there are some key differences between Ukrainian and Russian as political nations. It is very important to understand Ukraine not uh, as an ethnic project or linguistic project or only ethnic linguistic project, but uh, as a kind of a, a, a very deep tradition, political tradition. Uh, I think that what what makes Ukraine uh, different compared to Russia is um, a very specific attitude to politics. Because Ukrainian tradition, political tradition, sees the politics as a process of bottom-up, the bottom-up process, right? Meaning that something starts as a as a gathering of people in a community, what Ukrainians are calling a hromada. A hromada is, a, is, a, is means community, and it's um, a very important Ukrainian concept. It's a concept which is now 
intrinsically linked to the uh, reform of self-governance in Ukraine. But the origins we can see, for example, in the 19th century of such philosophers as Mihailo Drahomanov, one of the leading Ukrainian intellectuals of the, of the 19th century. And what is Roman? It's a community of people, self-governing community of people, people who gather together to decide on some issues. And when Drahomanov was, you know, developing his story about Romanos, he was he was saying that look, uh, there is a community. Then there are what he was called Romada of Romadas or community of communities, meaning a state. So the state is kind of a integration of of a multiplicity of Romadas. And then what is the world, international politics, is against this third level of this community, the community of communities of communities, right? Mm -hmm. This is a question linked to the question of leadership. So what we see in Ukraine in history and also now is that it's kind of collective leadership. We've seen that many times, in, for example, in recent history in Maidan, because in Maidan, we remember in 2013-14, yes, we had some leaders who were speaking all the time at, at the scene of Maidan, but there were, there were not them who decided on what was going on. Do you remember that? And for example, it's also the root of many mistakes Russia is making right today. Remember, three weeks ago, when Russia attacked Ukraine on the 24th of February, the idea was to kill, maybe to kill or to capture Zelensky. And they were convinced that this could change something. Because if you kill Zelensky, you, so you can, you can conquer this country. Because they think in their terms, in this uh, uh, up, up, up and down communication and governance, thinking that if you kill the leader, you will kill the nation. But it simply doesn't work in Ukraine, because we do understand that even if, imagine, I would not like to imagine that, because we hope that it will never happen, but even if Zelensky will be out of the game, there will be an, some, somebody, somebody on his place, and we are all presidents, as Zelensky said several years ago. In a way, this is a collective leadership. This is not um, this is not a kind of one leader who decides everything, like in Russia. And this has really, as you're absolutely right, Volodya, saying that this has explicit historical roots in these communities, in these hromadas, in this this um, this network of people and self-governance. And this is why when you travel uh, through Ukraine right now, and uh, we are traveling actually a lot, uh, we see that uh, on the initial stages of war, every single village had its own defense, had its own barricades, had its own territorial defense, uh, up to the level that the central government says, whoa, whoa, stop a little bit uh, because we cannot, uh, the roads are not functioning because it takes so much time to get through these checkpoints. And um, this is the, the self-organization spirit of Ukrainians. You, you can trace this back to... Uh, the Revolution of Dignity of 2013-14 to the Orange Revolution of 2004 and 5, uh, in which you have seen, we have seen the same, well, we are not only seen, but participated with you uh, in this process, uh, the same spirit of uh, self-organization, but it goes much deeper. And uh, our, our audience needs to understand that it goes much, much deeper in, in, into, into history, into centuries. And indeed, while Russia is presenting kind of a top-down version of politics, there is a Tsar, a tyrant, an autocrat, and everybody else is dependent on him, is, is frightened, is scared, 
write about him, but but one day they will obviously kill him, you know, themselves. In Ukraine, it's different. It's bottom-up politics. So even if the the head is cut, for example, the self-organization spirit will will continue. And, and this explains. Let me let me add maybe why this explains the fact why, for example, volunteers movement is so powerful in Ukraine. We've seen that back in 2013-14 uh, during Maidan and in the, this first war with Russia, I mean, at the time when Crimea was annexed and uh, Donbass was occupied, we do remember this extremely powerful volunteers movement, uh, people who were helping army. You remember, we didn't have army, in fact, in 2014. Back in 2014, we remember people going to, to the front without arms, without clothes, without anything. And we win this war, you, I, we do remember that uh, a lot of uh, a huge part of these territories in Lugansk and Donetsk regions were were freed by Ukrainian army, but um, and these uh, and also people volunteers movement helping internally displaced people. We, you remember we traveled a lot at that time and we are writing articles as journalists about these people. We were traveling to to the east but also to the West, and we were seeing people who, who did incredibly uh, fantastic things uh, with IDPs, internally displaced people, it explained that Ukrainians are somehow able to, to, uh, to, to self-organize, yeah, to, to create networks, to, to make things together uh, without any orders. That is the idea that Ukrainians, they act not because President Zelensky ordered them to do so, but they because they understand what is the Ukrainian interest, what is the and, common interest. And uh, Russians never understood that, and therefore they, they key propaganda against Ukrainian democracy is that Ukrainian democracy is basically curated by, by some people in the West, and uh, the key propaganda is that uh, all those demonstrations, all those revolutions were paid, and this is ridiculous. When Ukrainians are hearing that, this is ridiculous because Ukrainians are paying to get to, to build the army. They are paying themselves to make revolutions, uh, and not are being paid by somebody else because this is not what motivates them. But again, let's let's go deep into history. And Ukraine did not appear in 1991. Ukraine did not even appear in early twentieth uh, century when there was a a very important moment uh, of Ukrainian independence, the so-called Ukrainian uh, People's Republic. But it goes uh, goes deeper in history, it goes as deep as Middle Ages. Um, the powerful statehood on the current Ukrainian, partially Belarusian, partially Russian territories was called Rus. Don't mix it up with Russia, because Russia is a very later term, and by the way, mostly invented by Kiev intellectuals, because Russia is a, is a Greek version of the word Rus, and Russia is a Latin version of the word Rus. But the word Rus uh, is not Slavic word, it's a Scandinavian word. It's coming from Sweden, Finland probably, so-called Varangians. So the history of medieval Rus is deeply linked to the Scandinavians and to Greeks. Kiev was a place, was the hub between the north and the south, something that linked, connected the north and the south, the Varangian Scandinavian north and Greek Byzantine south in the 9th, 10th, 11th century. Uh, Kiev existed long, long before Moscow. Kiev was a place where 
Christianity entered Eastern Europe, entered in Eastern Slavs. Uh, Moscow uh, would be founded uh, after three centuries after that. So Kiev is, has a much deeper history. And when we're talking about colonization, imperialism, Russian imperialism, etc., with Kiev history, with Ukrainian history, it's a much difficult topic because uh, surely Russians have their colonization plan with regard to Ukraine. But in many aspects, Ukrainian lands were actually the, 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 the beginning uh, of, of the civilization coming to barbarian uh, northern countries of uh, Moscovy. I think that's, this point is, is extremely important and it, it explains, at least partially, why the war started. Because one could ask why Putin started this, this cruel, this unnecessary war against Ukraine. What happened, in fact? We were coexisting for, for three decades already since the independence, since the, since the end of the Soviet Union. What happened? Why Putin decided to do this extremely risky adventure, military, and we see we are at this end of the uh, third week of this war, and we see that uh, Russia is not successful. It is ex extremely risky. Why he decided to do so? A lot of people are talking about this kind of mission he has in his, in his mind, um, and when he tries to conquer or reconquer or to do something with Ukraine, it's not uh, it's not only to conquer territory, it is also about his adventure, adventures in time. Many European leaders, between them Olaf Scholz, Chancellor of Germany, and uh, French President Emmanuel Macron, they were talking that Putin sounded, sounded very historically uh, obsessed in the weeks which preceded his invasion. He tried, he's quite old, let us talk about that, he's 70 years old, he's approaching his natural end, that is clear. And what he is trying to do for Russia, and he's deeply mistaken, but he's trying to, to, to play for time and to play for the very beginning of this civilization, in fact. And what you were talking about, that everything started in Kiev, back in in centuries and between between north and south and the Kiev was the, the starting point of this uh, regional identity Putin is now trying to reconquer the very beginning this historical point and this is why Kiev for him is Kiev and Ukraine is something uh, important he's he's trying to control uh, and to add not only the ancient colony you know, but the center, the heart, in a, in a way, the heart of this civilization. Yeah, in a way, Russia without Kiev in his mind is just a headless, headless, uh, how to or say? Or heartless, maybe. Or heartless um, territory. Uh, cavalier, right? And uh, But it's interesting that what he sees uh, by Russia, basically, in, in the Rus uh, uh, of Kiev, has nothing to do with Russia, actually, because the political system of Rus uh, was very pluralistic. It was rather a political system uh, very close to, for example, Italy, medieval Italy, when, when you have city-states, when you had Florence, Venice, Rome, uh, Naples, Milan. And they were, of course, sometimes cooperating between each other, sometimes uh, coping with between each other, competing be oh, uh, with each war other, making each other. wars. 
but uh, but it was a pluralistic society actually and uh, united by a common identity but basically pluralistic so there were multiple centers of influence there was it was not an empire it was not a a tyrannical system of with the top down politics so this is very important uh, to understand this tradition ukrainian political tradition then after the attack of the mongols in the 13th century it is well well known that basically Kiev statehood was uh, uh, was suspended in for several centuries. We have another history of the currently Western Ukraine when this Rus was centered in Halic, which is now Galicia, Halicina, uh, very very interesting land because for our listeners from Austria, for example, or from uh, Central Europe, you know very well this crown land of Galicia and the important place, for example, for Eastern European Jews. And uh, they're, they're both cultural important place, but also the tragedy during the Holocaust. But uh, Halic, in, in Halic, there was a kingdom of Rus at one point. So Danilo, the king uh, of Rus, was crowned actually by the Pope. So we see this link to the Western Christianity as well, not only to the Eastern Christianity. But then Ukrainian lands were existing first in, within the Grand Duchy of Lithuania, in which basically Ukrainian or Belarusian version of uh, uh, Eastern Slavic languages was, was considered as an official language. And then after the, uh, the fusion of Lithuania and Poland into the, into the uh, the statehood, which with very pronouncing name Respublika, or in Polish Rzeczpospolita, uh, Ukrainian lands were kind of uh, absorbed into this new, new big political, statehood in in, in 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 Central Europe and influenced by them. So it's it's very important to see, for example, traditions uh, of. Uh, decentralized politics because the Polish politics was very decentralized in which the magnates, the elite, the Schlachta played a very important role and again much more powerful than the king uh, compared to um, other countries. And uh, this tradition was also very important on Ukrainian lands. For example, the tradition of autonomous cities, autonomous towns, which in Ukraine we call Magdeburg law, but which is a, actually a German law inspired by Italian law, which is in itself inspired by the Roman law. So the idea that a community should be autonomous, independent with regard to kings, with regard to tyrants, etc. So this links Ukrainian lands very much to this European tradition of self-governance. I think if, if we formulate with one word, what is European political tradition is self-governance -govern by individual, individual uh, governing by themselves. It's coming from Aristotle, etc., by community, by the state, etc. And just to link it once again, what uh, this historical perspective you are presenting to what is going on today, um, let's look what was going on in, in three recent weeks. So we see that uh, city leaders, I mean mayors in Kiev, in Lviv, in Kharkiv, in, in Melitopol, 
are uh, extremely important. So, and they play their autonomous role and they are self-defending in, in a way. They are defending their cities while central government is still in Kiev. So they are able to do, to, to mobilize their own people, people living inside the city and to, to act uh, sovereignly in a way, to act proactively. And uh, with some tragic and some heroic pages already written in this story, um, let's look at what's what's happening in Melitopol, Melitopol uh, city in the south of Ukraine, which was taken by Russians, and they captured um, the mayor of this city, and he stayed several, a couple of days uh, um, in 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 captivity, and he never 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 betrayed betrayed Ukraine, never betrayed um, Ukrainian idea. And then he was freed by Ukrainian army by this kind of exchange. He was exchanged against, if I'm not mistaken, nine or ten officers, uh, Russian or Russian army, and that's uh, it's heroic example. So you know, are... he, he he was defending this Ukrainian idea, being a regional leader. So mm-hmm. I mean, these mayors they are regional leaders. Look what's happening with Kim. Kim is a mayor of. Um, of Mykolaiv. Mykolaiv is a heroic city as well in southern Ukraine, which is uh, fighting against Russian army for many weeks already, for many days already, and they are successful in this in this um, in this battle. And the, uh, he's presenting videos of what he is doing uh, every day, and these videos are extremely popular because he has his his kind of humor, his kind of kind of uh, response yeah, to to Russian aggression. And he's a regional leader inside Ukraine, and he defends Ukraine. And this is something which maybe doesn't exist in Russia. You know, all this community of different people. Com- you cannot compare Kim to Sadovy, Sadovy is mayor of Lviv, or to Klitschko, Vitaly Klitschko is mayor of Kiev. So there's a kind of link network of, of independent people, independent men, independent, but they are uh, working together for this common victory. These are basically the knights, My knights meaning uh, K-N-I-G-H-T, the medieval knights, the the, uh, the, the uh, or the princess or princess, the yeah. princess of this you know uh, medieval Rus who are basically uh, they are they, they have power themselves so, so they they are not powerless what strikes me with for example with Russia after all these um, sanctions imposed on top Russian oligarchs and they are saying like Friedman or Deripaska or Abramovich. They, what they do? Are they are they making a complot against Putin? No, they just take a plane, go to Dubai or somebody, and they are saying, look, we are we are, we cannot do anything. We are not. We are powerless. So they are reproaching to the West. The West is imposing sanctions on them. They are saying, you understand nothing in Russian politics because we are helpless. We we are powerless. Well, you guys are <laughs> richest people in Russia. And you are powerless. And here in Ukraine, there is a, a mayor of t- of a tiny city, Militopol, um, with a Greek Greek name. Uh, the, the the city has a Greek name, uh, and and they are they having some power. And they're resisting. And they're resisting with result and effectively. So just because they don't defend an idea of Zelensky being lead, national leader or something, they are defending their own land, and they are they have some power and they have some capacities in place. And this is also because of this reform of decentralization. But not only. What what you were talking about about this historical perspective? Yes, indeed, it's a kind of uh, kind of a network of people in places who defend their their, their city, their village, their land, and they 
uh, this is a kind of personal at- attachment to that. This is not something abstract. This is not only about money and about power. This is about that this is real own land they are defending. They are mobilizing people. People trust them. So, so mayors, uh, people who are elected, they are not appointed by uh, by central uh, power. This is also important because that's why they have some credit in place. They have some respect uh, and some trust uh, in the communities. And that's why it is extremely difficult to to fight in Ukraine because you have several systems of defense and several systems of resistance. This is a resistance on the central level. I mean, army, armed forces, Zelensky, uh, minister of defense and all that kind of things. But at the same time, you have you have territorial defense, you have mayors in place who organize a lot of important things coming from water, electricity, uh, some brigades in place, etc., etc. So you have plenty of networks to fight against and this is not central so if you even if you fight uh, against Zelensky you will not you will not uh, cancel cancel the whole resistance that's the point exactly and uh, remember during this self-governance reform a few years ago we were talking that look there is some negative sides of it because we are increasingly going to a new neo-feudal system when you have those mayors who are basically controlling not only their cities but also their whole oblasts. They, they were creating their own parties, for example. So it became so much decentralized. And, and we were saying that, look, Ukraine is turning into a new feudal state where, yes, there is a king, but then there are a bunch of oligarchs, big businessmen, these uh, mayors, etc. It's extremely pluralistic but also kind of dangerous right but now we see the positive sides of it because they are not helpless they are people who are uh, used to an idea that they have power they have power in their communities and and look there is nothing in terms of no mayor is saying okay so maybe the central government is wrong i would better go to the russians and and sign a uh, separatists deal with them. Even those mayors who were basically not very much pro-Ukrainian, uh, let's say they they had they had their own game. I mean, the mayor of Odessa, mayor of Kharkiv, now they they do not say anything about it. So they under why Be- not because they are afraid of uh, of of Zelensky or central government, because they are really thinking that they should defend their land and they 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 city. And this local patriotism is very important for Ukraine. But again, it goes very deep into centuries. And this is a part of the uh, response to a question of who Ukrainians are and why this political system is much more effective than Russian one. Because uh, in a way, in a way, this is a key difference. You started with saying that we have a different political culture. We don't have these uh, top-down communication, top-down governments, governance. And maybe this explains the, the force of Ukrainian resistance and the effectiveness of this system and this capacity to live, to, to live and to survive, to survive even in this war. And in a way, I would say that it also explains the fragil- fragility of Russian system and their the incapacity, in fact, to survive. Because we are convinced at that very point, we are both Ukrainians, and we are convinced that this is the last war of this regime. This is the last war of Russia. Let's hope so. And they will not survive this uh, global isolation, this global sanctions, this global this resistance, real, real resistance in, in Ukraine, mainly because... This culture and this political culture is composed of one person, 
who started this nightmare on the global level, and a lot of millions, millions of powerless people who are hostages of the situation. They are, they are not innocent, but they can do nothing, in fact. Even if you're absolutely right saying that even the richest people in, in Russia, they are incapable to change something. You know? I, I remember. I remember. And this is, it means the end of Russia. I remember the French philosopher Marquise de Custine, who was coming to Russia in 19th century and then wrote a brilliant book, La Russie en 1839, Russia in uh, um, 1839. And I remember... so. It was quite a long long time ago, two centuries away, and I remember that he was saying that, look, in Russia you have a Tsar, but then the highest person close to the Tsar is already a slave. So a Tsar and then the bunch of millions of slaves, which are which have no dignity compared to the Tsar. And basically that what we, we have seen before the war when Putin was talking to his you know, subordinates, and we have seen this power, power uh, people who, who, who were supposed to be very powerful, who were like just, Narishkin, yeah. like Narishkin, the who, fears, the who were fears. actually slaves. And compare, compare this to President Zelensky when he, um, you know, got the power. Of course, it's another naivety and the utopian uh, figure of speech, but when in his speech one of his first speeches he said everybody's president yeah. right so of course it's a kind of a um, type of ukrainian populism uh, but with, with the very true idea that yes you, each ukrainian citizen is basically has the center of his action and thinking in, in him or herself uh, let us let us Probably we are approaching the end of this episode, but we will try to continue to explain to you the roots of Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian identity, Ukrainian political identity. And just to make a bridge to probably the other episodes, let's talk about Cossacks, because mm -hmm. the Cossacks is one of the cornerstone of Ukrainian political identity, is a warrior cl class, the class of warriors, which was born around early 16th, maybe late late 15th, early 16th century, on the borderlands with the big step. And uh, people who were extremely interesting uh, phenomenon because it's also about self-organization. It's also about uh, people who basically fled all the, all the, all, all, all the excesses of power in uh, Polish-Lithuanian common, Commonwealth who established some kind of self-governing republics in uh, down to the Dnipro River and creating kind of a semi-statehood which was very militarily oriented. So this is probably what now Ukraine looks like, uh, a big warrior class which, uh, which is the most trusted in, in Ukrainian society, the army. And, uh, but at the same time, they were combining different cultures because Cossack is a Turkic word initially. In their, in their uh, for example, in their clothes, you can see lots of these Orientalist elements. We can, there, are, there are testimonies that there were lots of Muslims in er, earlier Cossacks from and, Crimea. But they were not using Barektars. Yeah. Maybe the main difference yes, between yes, Muslims yes. and um, And th th there are many influences by Turkish culture, by Crimean Tatar culture. So different, different religions, different cultures, but this spirit of a borderland warrior who is, you know, 
uh, fighting against um, the the enemy in the open open steppe. And once again, uh, the, the the structure the structure of this Cossack world it was not uh, it was not top down communication either because it was a kind of uh, hetman hetman was a leader. Yeah, but he was. It, it was always a witch, a witch like Maidan, like like this um, gathering yeah, with other Cossacks, where everybody has the, had the right to raise his voice and to, to suggest something. So it was a military organization, but a kind of if you compare to it was not a regular army, you know, it was a military unit, military organization with with leader. But uh, it was not organized in a way where somebody gave orders and uh, I, I mean the strict kind, strict orders. Um, and in a way, this also prototype what what, what we are, we were already talking about about this down top communication and b- between the structure which is much more democratic, if if we can say so. Democratic or Republican, I, I like the word Republic, and uh, there is tradition of this Polish Republicanism, the uh, Rzeczpospolita, where the, <clears throat> the the feudals, the princes, the Schlachta, played a very important role. But in Ukraine, it's very interesting how it transferred more down to the uh, more down levels of society. For example, the warriors, the Cossacks, who uh, who were basically the new aristocracy, right? In their battle, who who earned the, the dignity in their battle, and therefore they were challenge, challenging the old schlachta, old aristocracy. But then this idea went in the 19th century to the peasants, and the paradox, maybe we will talk about it in in our later episodes, the rebirth of Ukrainian nationhood in the 19th century through the poets like Taras Shevchenko or others, it was an idea of bringing the Cossack myth down to the people, down to the common people, to peasants, primarily to peasants. And this is something which is extremely interesting, extremely important. But coming back to Cossacks, basically the document that Ukrainians consider as their first constitution, the constitution of Pilip Orlik in early 18th century, I consider it not so much as a constitution for people in in our sense of the term, but rather an agreement between the hetman, the leader of the Cossacks, and the Cossacks. So it's it's a contractual version of politics. What does it mean? That not only hetman, not only uh, the, the agreement between the leader and his his army means that the leader accepts mutuality of obligations. Mm-hmm. That not only his army has obligations to him, but also he has obligations to ensure what it was called at that time and still called today the rights and freedoms. Rights and freedoms. Let's not forget that rights and freedoms, the very concept is not invention of 20th or 21st century. It goes very deep in history, in European history, in feudal times and basically to Roman times, uh, ancient times, etc. And I think this is all very important because when Ukrainian Cossacks under Bogdan Khmelnytsky tried to sign the deal with Moscovite Tsar, the Moscovite Tsar has said that he does not accept any obligation with regard to Cossacks. Mm-hmm. That's the key difference. So they were talking in the 17th century with us, 
uh, with the language of autocracy. The Tsar has no obligation to you. You just, you know, you're just, you, you're just your, uh, his slaves. So this is the key difference, and uh, I want we want our listeners to understand it. I think we will wrap up and we'll try to continue to explain these Ukrainian traditions for you uh, in more detail in our next episodes. It was explaining Ukraine podcast by ukraineworld.org. This series, the war series, is brought to you. Uh, by Internews Ukraine and Ukraine Crisis Media Center. Tetiano Harko, who is in charge of international communications of Ukraine Crisis Media Center. My name is Vladimir Yermolnko. I'm chief editor of ukraineworld.org. Support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash ukraineworld. Listen uh, to us on SoundCloud, Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and YouTube. And stay with us and stand with Ukraine.